0: the science of
1: sports podcast with professor Ross Tucker and sports journalist Mike Finch
2: So welcome back to the Science of Sport podcast uh, as usual my name is Mike Finch and I'm here with professor Ross Tucker who's just returned from a couple of weeks abroad and most notably has been attending the 6th International Conference on Concussion. So when I asked Ross to kind of give a, a bit of a précis about what was discussed at that meeting, along with the concussion and sport group, um, what uh, came out of that was quite a complicated story. There are some arguments for and against. There is causal versus non-causal. We'll explain that a bit later on, and we'll talk a little bit about how meetings like this are quite important in the world of sport, even though... Most of us who watch sport probably don't realise how much of an effect it has on the sport that we do. And uh, we're going to get into some sort of nuts and bolts of all of that. Um, but before we, before we get into that, one of the things that we, we chatted a little bit before um, this podcast is uh, we were watching a cyclist by the name of Tegan Phillips, who was riding from uh, Cairo to Cape Town. And we always have a bit of a section before our podcast called Caught My Eye And uh, that's one thing that caught my eye Tegan Phillips, a Cape Town cyclist And I know Ross and I have ridden with her a few times Normally behind her because she's a lot faster and stronger than we are But Tegan was attempting to ride from Cairo to Cape Town And to establish a record for women Um, Although lots of women have done it None of them have actually gone for a specific time in, in In an attempt to break a Guinness World Record for that Of course lots of men have done it and uh, she did one day of about 300 kilometers, and then the next day she collapsed with a variety of different symptoms. And um, if you follow her on uh, Instagram, she is really good on Instagram. She has a um, Instagram handle is Tegan Phillips Comics, and uh, she gave a lot of detail about what actually happened to, her, including some quite graphic pictures of her in hospital and basically collapsing. And I know Ross. Um i'm throwing this this at you as a bit of a surprise because I know you were chatting to her on uh, on some of the social media channels just talking a bit about it, and we'll probably be able to find out more about what happened to Tegan. but at first the first diagnosis she gave is it was a sodium loss issue hmm. then it was then it was ideas of heat stroke et cetera et cetera just give your give us your uh, take on it given the fact that we don't know too much unless we see some of the actual doctor's reports
1: yeah so the only thing that i saw in the instagram post was she mentioned that her sodium level was 113 which is unbelievably low like there have been some cases in that range in iron man and comrades that i've seen where you get people in the low hundreds but most of the time and 95 percent of the race finishes in the 135 and above range your normal sodium is around 140 to 145 so by the time you drop to 113 you've got some serious problems and the seizures that she says she had and the confusion didn't recognize her friends these are all symptoms the very first case in fact that Tim Noakes ever documented was a woman running comrades and her husband pulled her off the route because she didn't recognize him at about the 80k mark I think it was maybe maybe 70 and that was subsequently confirmed to be a, a low sodium case So then the exploration starts as to why these sodium levels drop. And there's two options here, right? The one is you've lost salt, and the other is you've added water. Yeah. Because if you simplistically think of your body as a big bucket of water with some salt tablets in it, dissolved, Mm. you can lower the sodium concentration of that bucket in two ways. You can extract the salt, as in lose the salt, Mm. or you can add water to it, or either pure water or less salty water than what's in there in the first place. Makes Mm. sense, right? Yeah. And what we know from the research studies is that it's almost always a case of fluid overload and not salt loss. It's almost impossible to lose salt mm. to become hypernatremic unless you have a disease of some kind, mm. some sort of pathology. So I thought to, I thought reading what she was saying is that this this doesn't seem like a sodium loss thing. Because she also said she'd been eating salt, which doesn't help at all. Your, your plasma is so salty, you'd have to eat a ton of salt to keep it up. Yeah. And so I messaged her and she replied fairly quickly and then we chatted a bit. And there's a few things that I think would be useful to know, like did she weigh more on admission to hospital than normal? We know from thousands of data points that when you finish a race weighing more, you are much more at risk of sodium levels dropping very low.
2: So just to, I mean, just to simplify that, if you're weighing more, you're then saying that this is a case of hyponatremia.
1: Well, is no, it? the hyponatremia is the consequence of the fluid gain. Because if you weigh more, it's fluid. Right. I mean, yes. you, you could eat yourself overnight. heavy. Yes. But you're not going to, you know, it's fluid. So right. like, and, and this happens, right? You get people who will finish a marathon or comrades a kilogram or three or four kilograms even heavier than when they started because mm. their sweat rate is, say, 600 moles an hour. 800 even, Mm. but they're drinking a liter because someone said they must. Mm. It's actually every hour they're gaining 200 mils. So five, six hours later, they're a kilogram heavier. 10 hours later, they're two heavier. So when you see people who've gained weight at the end of an endurance event, that's a sign of problems, and there's no doubt it's the risk factor that drives most of the low sodium levels. Now,
2: so low sodium, you're talking specifically about low sodium in the gut rather than in the body. No, in the, plasma. In the plasma. In the plasma, okay, okay right. Because the fluid then moving from the gut into the plasma and diluting
1: it, right. So you get a, a, a plasma dilution, right. And so, yeah. So so you need to know exactly, and then this is I said to her, if she could find this information, it would be useful. She's obviously curious to know what happened. Yeah, and. Uh, you know, so, so there are now theories that, because when you, when you look at it, it's not just a simple case of drink more sodium drops, get ill. Yeah. Sometimes people drink more and they don't get ill because their body responds mm. with hormones that then lose fluid to protect them. Mm-hmm. Other times, people who don't drink all that much, but still a little bit too much, have very low sodium. And the theory there is that normally when we exercise, our body shuts off a hormone that retains water. But the theory is that in some cases, for various reasons, you get inappropriately high levels of this hormone. It's called ADH or, or vasopressin, depending which continent you're standing on. Mm-hmm. Um, and ADH is antidiuretic hormone, so it, it basically retains fluid. So then what happens is you don't lose the fluid you should have lost. And the consequence then is that your sodium levels go down. Makes sense, right? Yeah. You want to actually lose some fluid. It keeps your salt because levels. Because you've got normal. more water than sodium. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah, so I mean that's that seems to me the like most plausible explanation. It's not salt loss, it's fluid retention. Now what caused that, I don't know. Mm. You know, thyroid issues, some sort of viral infection, mm. central. She also said that she had heat stroke. I'm not convinced by that. I think a lot of time when, when athletes end up with medical problems, the default option is you are exercising, therefore you are hot. You know, it's kind of like a lazy mm. So unless it's measured and someone shows that it was forty point five or higher, I'm not going to go with a heat stroke theory Mm. i'd rather suggest that she's probably hot but not heat stroke Mm. hot but something else has gone wrong in the system so yeah i mean she's lucky Mm. that she got treatment and people close enough by to get her to hospital quickly enough yeah and i'm glad she's okay but i mean it's really interesting actually and Mm. if she sends data and we can look at it because you can Once you know like what the weight gain or loss or whatever is, and you know what the sodium levels are, you can make certain estimates of what the sodium loss must have been versus the water retention, and you can say, okay, what's plausible here and what's not. And I'd be surprised if there's a plausible explanation for losing that much salt as opposed to retaining or ingesting that much water.
2: Yeah. I think what's interesting, again, is that she's not somebody that's um, not used to these type of distances. So. Or, temp-
1: or conditions, eh? Yeah. Because, like, you could yeah. say, oh, well, you know, she's starting in Egypt and maybe it's a bit warm. But yeah. when was she? She, she went to the U.S. earlier wasn't this year. She? Yeah. And she was riding at midnight yeah. to, to avoid the heat, mm. but still going at, like, 30-something degrees. That's right. So... Yeah. She's yeah.
2: accustomed to the distance. She's fit and she's mm. used to the heat. Yeah. So why now, all of a sudden? Yeah, I know. I mean, I know we have a, a great deal of affection for Tegan because we, we do know her and she's a fantastic athlete. But you're right. The first thing I saw when I saw what happened to her was Ross is going to revel in this to some extent, you know, but because of, from a scientific perspective, because it is such a fascinating yeah case. I mean, it's a, Yeah. It's yeah. a person on the and end. As I say, I'm
1: glad she's okay. Yeah, for it's, sure. It's, yeah. That's the best part. But it's mm. also a really interesting problem to solve, yeah. understand, and then solve. Because I'm sure she's not going to say, no, I'm not going to do this anymore. Mm. She'll want to do it again. Mm. I don't know whether she loses her window, yeah. or whether she had to start now in order to do it, mm. whether she could still do it in mid-December. I don't, I don't know. But
2: whatever happens, obviously, she wants mm. to understand what's happening. Mm. So. Well, hmm. I'm sure that, Ross, I'm sure that once you get some of the data, you'll be delving into that to some extent and hopefully maybe coming up with some conclusion that will help her and, and her doctors understand this a bit better. But, yeah, we'll, we'll keep an eye on that and, uh, and let you know once we find out more information.
1: Yeah, yeah, exactly. Then speaking of caught my eyes, you might recall in our last podcast or two back, we spoke about who is the most watched sports person ever. <laughs> You this remember is a, this? This is a great, great one. <laughs> I don't know whether you thought about it anymore and you have more answers. Yeah.
2: Well, I've actually asked a lot of people. And the interesting thing is my first answer was, of course, to think about soccer players, Yeah. Um, which I would say most of the people that I've spoken to say the same thing, um, which is why your conclusion, which was based on some of the data points that you put down, probably is the most realistic. I do have some argument against it unless you've had a, a change of heart from what you last told me. <laughs> well,
1: so so I got a lot, like I asked it on Twitter. I got a lot of responses. I'm not going to go through those. I also asked it on Patreon and I'm going to read you those because the patrons, you're our VIPs after all. So thanks for contributing. But soccer is the obvious one, right? And then you think, okay, who would it be? Because you need to have you need to have someone who, who's played a lot mm. and in front of a lot of people. Mm. That's why Federer, because remember, that was the catalyst for this debate. Was some, A mate of mine said, He's, how many people must have watched that guy? Millions. Which is mm. true. But Federer doesn't play in front of enough people. So even no. though he played easily more than 1,000 matches, the stadiums just aren't big enough. Yeah. Even the biggest stadium is still pretty yeah. small compared 30, 40, to... What Ronaldo, Messi, and these guys are playing in? What do every we say that the week? average
2: size of a stadium in American football is sixty thousand? That's the average size. Yeah. So people like Tom Brady were obviously in the mix for this
1: as right. well. But then you the know? problem there is they don't play enough because that yeah. season used to only be sixteen; it's now seventeen matches regular, and then you play the playoffs. So even over a twenty-year career, he's not getting anything like a thousand mm. matches. Yeah. So he loses on the other side of the equation. So you yeah. need both, right? <laughs> so if you if you if you start with football, which is a reasonable place to start for us. And you say, okay, let's take a guy who played 1,000 matches. I think Ronaldo fits the bill. Average, average attendance, generously 50,000. Because yeah. remember, a lot of the time, especially when he was in Spain, he was going away. Mm-hmm. Every second week, he's in Madrid, you know, 70,000, 80,000. Mm-hmm. But every other week, he's playing in front of 15,000, 20,000. So, yeah. Okay, so 50,000. Yeah. That gives him 50 million. Right. Live views in his career. Mm-hmm. So That
2: sounds like a lot.
1: It is. I mean, it is a lot. That's your benchmark, your first one, right? right. But then, then you say, okay, where might we find others? Baseball plays a lot. The, the the career leader for matches played is three thousand five hundred and sixty two games. A guy wow. called Pete Rose. Wow. Okay. So that's three three and a half times more than most footballers will play.
2: Yes, because sometimes they
1: play twice a week. Yeah, sometimes uh, they play twice a day. Yeah, like their season is insane. Yeah. So if you have a long baseball career, you play thousands, mm. literally, of matches, and the average attendance there is not low enough to offset against football. So mm. 000, twenty five thousand, twenty thousand people. So even if you conservatively said 20000 for Pete Rose, that gives you $71 million. So there's your new leader. Right, okay. So, now,
3: okay. so you say, okay.
1: <laughs> then, you see, I was thinking loopholes. So I'm thinking cycling, mm-hmm. which is not the same thing as sitting in a stadium for 90 minutes watching Messi or Ronaldo or Pete Rose or whatever. Because the guy's whizzed by you in a second. He's gone. Yes. So have you really watched him?
2: Yeah, exactly.
1: But still, you've seen him live. So mm. now you say, okay. You know they always give those stats on the Tour de France and they say, 10 million people watched the tour. I never believed that, first of all. No. I think it's wildly inflated. Nobody's
2: counting the people on the side of the road, actually.
1: I remember in 2004, I went to Alpe Duez, They had an individual time trail up there, and they reckoned there were a million people on the mountain. And I'm saying, well, hang on a moment. It's 13.8 k's long. Mm-hmm. So even if both sides are lined, there's 26.5 k's. Mm. That's 40 people every meter on both sides of the road. Like, come on, think this Tra- through. Trust you. Think this through. <laughs> <true>. Trust <laughs> you to do the
2: maths on that. So
1: there's no way, there's no way they get a million people on Alpha after- Days. Maybe 200,000, but even that's eight people per that's meter. quite
2: a thick, yeah.
1: I mean, at the finish, <laughs> fine. There's a stadium and a stand and whatever. But mm. lower down, I mean... Yeah, you're not going to get eight not, and you're not definitely not going to get 40. You're not getting 40 people no. every meter mm. on, the, on the road. Anyways. Yeah. So, but, but if a guy has a career like Valverde and he does 30 grand tours... Mm. Alejandro. 30 Dauphinés, 30 uh, single-day races like Paris-Nice and so on, mm. plus five classics every year for 20 years... Mm. That starts to add up. So I yeah. think that's probably the
2: leader I got to. I suppose that, that was my so, argument, and I just said that, you know, how many... You, you, you might go past people, but have they actually right. watched him and so, seen him? But in, yes, in theory... I did say
1: it was a loophole. Yes, it is a loophole. So here's some uh, patrons, right? So right. let's talk about loopholes. Martin Hawkins, I love the loophole his 12-year-old son came up with. Jerry West. So who's Jerry West? <laughs> Jerry West is the silhouette on the NBA logo. So he reckons that... Over the last however many decades, every single person who's gone to an NBA match has seen Jerry West. But I say, let's see, that's, he's not alive <laughs> when yeah. you've seen him. So, yeah. disqualified, but I appreciate yeah. the I like commitment thoughts. to a loophole. <laughs> few people said cricket because they've seen Indian cricket, 100,000 people, five days. The problem there is that, again, it's the same as Ronaldo. When they come to South Africa, they're playing 5,000 5, people, if they're lucky. <laughs> we don't get mm. big big grounds, and they they just don't play enough. Yeah. So I think cricket probably loses on the on both ends of the equation. Yeah. Then here's here's the winners, right? Alison M. Cat Manzi never heard of this person, and I guarantee most listeners wouldn't. Harness racehorse driver driving ninety five thousand six hundred and ninety races for a live audience of probably five hundred to thirty thousand people at a time.
2: Sure.
1: And so. Okay. Yeah. So now, you, and I mean, the thing I don't know about that is that they do. I know they do multiple races on a day. So is ninety five thousand six hundred ninety is it nine thousand days of racing? Mm. In which case, you only count nine thousand, mm. even if you did at twenty thousand. That's more than your baseballer. Yeah. So, wow. Kat, or Dave Pallone, who's still going strong, has raced over seventy seven thousand races, winning twenty thousand one hundred fifty two of them, or a horse called Foiled Again. Had a huge following, 331 races. But see, that was with 30,000 spectators. So that that's like a footballer. Yeah. But yeah. the the harness race course drivers. That's amazing. And then even more left field. I don't even know whether they do that. I'm assuming it's American. It's in the US, yeah. yeah. I looked this up and front pictures. It's like, it's like little chariots, yes. like gladiators. Right. Speaking of, Ron Tyler, this is the most left field one. Gaius Apilius Diocles, a Roman charioteer who lived... In the early part of the ADs, 104 to 146 AD. He raised for 24 years, won 4,247, placed in 1,438 more. Modern calculation suggests that each of those Colosseums held 150,000. Wow. So if you do the sums on that, 4,250 times 150,000, you get 637 million people, I think. Wow. Is that right? Let me just check those sums.
2: These patrons are
1: quite smart. No, we have the best. We have the best Gee, ones.
2: That's unbelievable that so they that's,
1: know that. Yeah, six hundred and thirty-seven million, and then he followed up. He said he also had a thousand wins as a single horse racer, so that's another hundred and sixty million. So he reckons this Roman charioteer got to eight hundred million. When you compare
2: it to our baseball and cyclists, yeah. So who knew? You I hadn't know, thought yeah, that—that's that, I mean, that's, a great one, yeah. yeah. And again, because we were always linking it to what we would—I mean—to reiterate, to this is not about TV watching. No, this is about live watching in the flesh. Yeah. 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 It's Char- really interesting.
1: Charlie Do- Charlie John- Johnson got what I thought was the sport initially, um, baseball, because they have 162 games in a season, and then the playoffs and so on. And if you get thirty thousand and you play long enough, yeah. you'll be Pete Rose with, what was it, seventy <clears throat> yeah. to a hundred million people. Yeah. yeah. But when you start thinking about these Roman charioteers, there you go. <laughs> so, anyways, thanks oh, yeah. patrons That's for your. That's fantastic. Thank you very friends. much for it's that. It's cool. Yeah. It's fun. There was loads of debate on Twitter, like as well. I mean, mm. and a lot of people landed on Rose, baseball. Some people got Valverde. Ch- Chavanel's done the most Tour de Frances. So mm-hmm. He he would be maybe one. of the, I think probably Valverde did more other, other tours, races, yeah, other so, grand so, tours, yeah, and single day so and so on. Anyways, yeah. good and fun. And probably,
2: and probably, I mean, people like Chavanel were. Domestiques, so uh, realistically, and, and it's going. I'm contradicting myself slightly here, but Valverde was more visible than yeah, most yeah. cyclists because right. he was right. he was doing well. Ugh. Yeah. Eddie
1: Merckx, maybe. I don't know yeah. how much those guys used to race. That was before my time. But yeah. guys like that, maybe, as well. So, yeah. Anyway, fun exercise. Well, thank you very much,
2: everybody, for who contributed, not only to do the Patreon um, uh, question, but also on Twitter. And uh, my challenge to Ross, of course, is to come up with another great question because that one certainly generated a lot of interest. So. Thank you. Um, we haven't reached a conclusion, I guess, but I suppose it's uh, it's it's a good one to have if you're talking at the dinner table with friends. Yeah, it's hard to beat Alison and Ron there. I must say. I mean, <laughs> if you can think of anyone who's been seen by more million. than eight hundred million people, yeah. I'd be surprised. There you go. Yeah. So let's get on to the the topic of discussion here. And as I've just said in the intro, you've just been at the sixth international conference on concussion. It's. It, it, I've read a bit about some of the stuff that was written about the conference itself and, and one of the pieces that was written in The Guardian talking about the fact that most of us probably wouldn't care about a conference on concussion, but actually it has mm. quite raging, quite wide-ranging impact on the world of sport.
1: Yeah, although although if you only looked at the media, you'd think it's a narrow impact because mm. the, that was a conference. That was a three-day conference that covered so much ground and the only media coverage was on one element of a, of it, you know, literally – 10 percent of it because the whole point of the conference is to produce these what are called consensus papers which are themselves an outcome of a systematic review so basically they this concussion in sport group Mm -hmm. identifies who they believe to be the world leading experts on different areas of concussion preventing concussion diagnosing concussion treating concussion managing return to play long-term health implications all that sort of stuff right and then they commission these groups to go and look into all the work that's been published, to produce what's called a systematic review, like a summary of the best quality work, and then a consensus document, which then is important because it drives behavior for the mm. next however many years until it gets updated. Now there it's almost nine, like a
2: guidance document that other yeah, feder- that federations
1: use. Is it's that? a theoretical guidance document. It's not, it's not policy because mm. then what happens is each sport is free to take up policies that come out of it so if you go back and we'll get to this i'm sure the idea of like managing return to play using a six stage graded protocol where from the day of your concussion diagnosis you've got to go through certain checkpoints before you can play again that came out of this group a decade or more ago and all the sports have pretty much adopted that it's come in for criticism now so the, the, the the outcome is a theoretical document that can then inform policy by different sports or not I mean there are some instances where world rugby doesn't comply with the theory of the because we've got our own data and we believe we're doing something that's slightly better but this is how it works and there were nine there were nine documents that come out of this they haven't come out yet they will mm. and then and number nine paper nine is the one on long-term health implications and that's where all the controversy exists because that's yeah. where the Questions about neurodegenerative disease and dementia and CTE and so on come in. And it's a shame because, like, there's so many good minds in that room. I mean, it's like you know, there's a few hundred people in this hall, and all these top people have done a lot of work. I was on, for disclosure's sake, I was on the prevention paper. So I was one of the, the people who are going to write that systematic review. Mm-hmm. And I mean, the hours and hours and hours of work, and then you discuss prevention and diagnosis and treatment, and so on. And then the only thing people want to talk about is, does. Collisions and concussions cause mm. CTE. And mm. it's, it's a shame because, you know, the one we should be talking about is prevention. The yeah. best the best injury is the one that never happens. Yeah. But no, we we got sucked into this media storm around paper and I was going to say
2: that's the media angle to some extent. Yeah, exactly. Just, just for context, we've talked about this before. Um, probably the most it came out of a movie called Concussion, I think mm. with Will Smith in it. That's right, yeah. Where it talks a little bit about the fact that American footballers were then taking legal action against the, the NFL, which has cost them millions, mm. um, saying that they didn't do enough to prevent something like the long-term effects of concussion. Yeah. So two So two questions. Is that the the easy-to-understand background to this conversation that this is happening? And second of all, just tell me what CTE is. Yeah, <laughs> what does so, it stand for?
1: Yeah, so that is, that is simple. The only thing I'd add is that... The allegation made against the NFL there was the result of these these brains that began to be identified with this condition. CT Park mm. that we'll get to. It. The subsequently there was a lawsuit. The first case was two thousand five or six. Mm. A guy called Mike Webster was identified by a scientist called Bennett Amalu. That's the character that Will well Will Smith played him in the movie.
2: Yeah.
1: It culminated in a lawsuit, and the the crux of that was an allegation that the NFL knew the risk, but then didn't act. So there was negligence both to well, the, the issue was that they knew it and tried to cover it up, right? And that was eventually settled and there's still, even now, names being added to that all the time receiving these payouts mm. without, as I understand it, like an admission of guilt, effectively, or liability. Mm. So CTE has become the headline grabber, but there are others. I mean, there's early onset dementia, there's Parkinson's early onset and so on that have also been found in these in these collision sport players, including rugby now. We'll talk about one of the studies there, but CT is chronic, so in other words, happens over time. Mm-hmm. Traumatic, no yeah. definition needed. Encephalopathy, which, yeah. which Im- implicates, Im- implicates or implies pathology of the brain, and it was first it was first named in the 1940s, but it had been identified as a clinical condition in the 1920s by a guy called Martland, who'd noticed in boxes that had taken repeated blows to the head, they developed what then subsequently was called punch-drunk syndrome. Right. You know, the whole yep. slurring of speech, balance problems. <laughs> you could just mm. tell that these guys were, you know... Muhammad Ali, of course, the the, so that, the pin-up
2: boy of it to some extent. Well, yeah, that it? was Parkinson's. I don't yeah.
1: know that Ali's brain ever got examined for CT. I feel yeah. like I would not know if that had happened, but...
2: That's true, actually. It wasn't necessarily yeah. punch-drunk. Yeah,
1: and so... Between the 1920s and the 1949, when CTE was first used as a term, chronic traumatic encephalopathy, it was pretty much confined to boxes. It's subsequently been shown, obviously, in American football players. We just mentioned some of those. Uh, Victims of domestic abuse have been found with it. Um, Clowns who get fired out of a cannon for a living, like sort of amazingly you wouldn't think but there's a, literally a paper that l- l- lists that as one of the case studies so okay. and the point is that they're saying that this is a condition that happens as a consequence of repeated head impacts and it causes eventually and without getting into the pathology of it because i'm, I'm on seriously thin ice and unlike some i prefer not to walk on thin ice because i know what happens when i do it eventually causes an accumulation of these phosphorylated tau proteins. It's a protein that accumulates in the little grooves and fissures around part of the, in an area of the brain. And that's how it's identified, right. which, which, which is one of the problems is that it's not, it's not identifiable in a living person. It sometimes presents clinically, Because you get explosiveness, aggression, depression, mood swings, irritability, forgetfulness, and so on. Which look a lot like sometimes dementia and Alzheimer's. Mm -hmm. But then under examination, they're saying that you can identify this as distinct. There's a very specific lesion that they say is used to identify CTE. Now, there's controversy around that. We we had a guy present at our medical meeting in the week after the, the concussion meeting saying that there's, in his mind, he's a pathologist... In his mind, there's confusion around the diagnosis. He's Mm -hmm. saying that a lot of them look more like Alzheimer's to him. And of course, Q now, you get the other side howling at the fact that he's saying they're liars. Mm -hmm. And so it's a very ugly debate and it's polarizing. And it seems to me, based on my reading of it, that there's a lot that's known, there's a lot that's unknown. There's a great deal that's agreed, and then there's a great deal that's disputed. Mm -hmm. But trying to have a reasonable conversation about it in the midst of litigation, controversy, real humans who are suffering, I mean, you've got these players with it. It must be terrible to have this happen to you in the 50s and so on. So there's a lot going on that makes it hard to simply answer the question. But I mean, does that tell you what CT is? Yes, yeah. And what's interesting about it is it used to be a clinically identified condition, punch drunk syndrome or dementia pugilistica. You'd see the you'd see the symptoms. You'd see the signs wow. in the person clinically. It's right. now a pathological. It's neuropathology now, right. which then presents with the signs. And so now there are now there are these brain banks all around the world. Mm. In Australia, they're trying to collect the brains of rugby league rugby players. AFL mm. in America, of course, there's a couple of them. Um, there's one or two now in England that are trying to collect the brains of all these athletes and examine them. And the group in Boston has published probably the most and they find a high prevalence of these cte lesions in players who donate their brains mm-hmm. and so
2: that's the that's the research body on that side you see what's interesting about this is that from the outsider's perspective it seems natural to assume that a sport that is involves some sort of impact right. is going to cause serious head damage i mean a, a, so um, boxing is obviously the most obvious one. Um, yeah. And you wonder what boxing could do to ever change that because that is essentially the, the aim of the, the sport. Exactly. But in sports like yeah. in a, um, NFL, rugby, um, rugby league, I'd imagine, uh, Aussie football, all that kind of stuff, mm. I, 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 there is obviously ways of preventing that. But why is there a debate about whether it is causal or not? I mean, I know that there are, to some extent, it's, it's – you were saying now, why? Why focus on what causes it? We know that it exists. Therefore, rather focus on the treatment. Why is there such a debate around whether it whether the sport causes it or not?
1: I mean, it's, it, there's an academic and theoretical value to understanding mm. the cause and, and and quantifying. Not just you see, and this is where it gets like heated because there's a group that's pushing to to have sports commit to say, X causes Y. Right. Head impacts are causal for CTE that's being resisted by many of the sports that are saying we recognize an association but we're not going to go so far as to say there's a cause and that's probably the case for rugby you know we can get onto in a moment but Almost nine years ago, at the beginning of 2014, Rugby brought out a position statement. It had worked with um, a group of neuropathologists and experts on on concussion and brought out a position statement on CTE. And that statement literally said, the IRB at that stage World Rugby, well is now, acknowledges that studies on boxes report an association between exposure to head injury and long-term neurological problems. That's the whole punch drunk thing. Further, we acknowledge that autopsy-based studies in contact sports such as an American football report an association between repetitive head injuries and neurodegenerative disease. So, as far back as 2014, rugby had already acknowledged the association. Now... Whether you can turn an association...
2: But not the into association of it. the sport with that, the association that... With head impacts. head impacts caused X, but not necessarily directly admitting that the sport was to blame. Yes, and, and that's, where, that's where
1: you can argue it in two ways. Now, the, the other side, and I hate this thing. I, I wish that it wasn't <laughs> so polarized, but there is there are clearly two sides here. Yeah. So we can talk about it accurately. The other side are trying to force the commitment to causality. And and they can argue two things to say why it's not being admitted to. The one is the legal and the liability issues. If you admit to and again, I don't know, I don't understand all this. Like my understanding of the legal thing is that you can only be you can only be responsible for managing something you knew about at the time. If you if you didn't know it and it wasn't reasonable to know it, then you're not liable, you know? Like how could you have known otherwise? Correct. So so to to for this for any sport, whether it was the NFL AFL now, league, union, whatever, to be guilty, they have to A, know or should have known and B, fail to act Mm. and communicate. Right? Mm. Now, I think it's reasonable to say that no one really knew this until relatively recently. Someone showed a graph at the conference of the number of papers investigating CTE and it's a flat line, flat line, flat line and then bang in about the mid 2000s, late 2000s. 2010-11, 2010-11, it just shoots up. It looks like a COVID graph you looked in the early part of 2020. You know what I mean? Nothing, 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 nothing. Lots. Boom. And do we know why? Because that was when it was first identified in the football players. And then suddenly people started looking for it. So this the understanding of it in right. in contact sport only really came then. Yes, boxing that identified it before. But in contact sports, I mean, yeah. think about it how mad South Africans are for rugby. Ask them how much they know about this condition.
2: Yeah.
1: so It's not, it's not, it's 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 amazing. It's not 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 widely accepted. Exactly. Mm. So, so I, so I'm not, and then the other reason that you wouldn't want to go so far as to turn an association into causality is scientific integrity. You know, Mm. the studies that have come out on CTE and we'll get, I suppose, maybe this leads into the actual session on this at the conference. They are case series. Mm. So, The lab in Boston, England, Australia are basically getting donated brains from retired football players, ice hockey players, boxers, military and so on. And then they're examining them and confirming CT. But it's not like there's a case control. It's not like every brain they get from a retired football player is matched to someone from someone who's the same age, same life history, Mm. same socioeconomic statement and other behaviors because they are confounders. Mm. So you need a case and a control where you can control for as many confounders as possible and then try and link the outcome, C T E, to the thing that's different between them. That makes sense, right? Right, yes. So yes. So that's why that's why a lot of people are saying, hang on, the 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 research that exists at the moment doesn't allow us to take that next step. And I know and this is where again, you're gonna be if If you're listening to this and you're on that side, you can say, of course I'm saying that I'm rugby. And fair enough, Like you can dismiss my opinion. But I know a lot of really good scientists who have tremendous integrity and they can't bring themselves to take that step, to go from association to causality. Because the studies that exist just are not strong enough to do it. There are studies on other conditions. Willie Stewart is a neuropathologist in Glasgow, has done it on football and as recently as October – I'll put this link in the notes again for you – he published a paper which is a case control series. They looked at uh, 400 odd studies of players uh, in Scotland, international rugby players, and 1,236 members of the general population who were matched for age, sex, and socioeconomic status. Okay, so that's yeah. similarly matched. And they found a couple things. One is mortality in the rugby players is lower so in other words, rugby players are less likely to die because okay, rugby because they're fitter fitness and wow. health. and so there are benefits to rugby, which yeah. often you won't read about, but still there are.. Yeah. But conditions like neurodegenerative disease were two and a half times more likely in that rugby playing population once they get to the age of 70. So all cause mortality was lower up to 70 years of age and thereafter the same, and the risk of developing these neurodegenerative diseases like dementia is two and a half times higher in rugby players. Now, that's not the first time that's been shown. And in fact, the 2016 consensus paper actually concludes that there is a a documented and confirmed loss of neurocognitive function in professional collision sport players, and an increased risk from these kinds of studies Mm. but these kinds of studies haven't been done for cte yet yeah that's the that's the problem like this one in scotland is autopsy records that basically um confirm dimensions but they're not looking specifically for cte so Mm. so in my opinion the the scientific integrity answer is we just don't know enough to say the next bit but again my bias is prevention and i don't This might sound strange. It's like I don't particularly care whether it's caused or associated. Mm. The solution's the same: is prevent the head injury. Like, and and you know, in in 2014, that position statement said, "World Rugby's recognizing this link. World Rugby's adopted a proactive approach whilst awaiting further insight from more detailed research." These initiatives are, and they're all about preventing head injuries and reducing the intensity and the severity of those head impacts in the sport. Now, Mm. you can, and some will accuse us of not acting fast enough, but literally hand on heart, as I speak to you today, if a study came out tomorrow, the 18th of November, and it was perfectly Mm. controlled, prospective cohorts, and it proved beyond any doubt that CTE was caused by repeated head impacts. It wouldn't change what I do from that day forward, because we're already trying to prevent it. So, yeah, I look at this argument and the hostilities around it, and I'm like, well, let, mm. put your put your energies into preventing the thing instead of labelling it. You know, look, there,
2: I, there are there, there are semantics about what you just said. That you're saying that if, if a study came out proving that repeated head impacts caused CTE, but there there is evidence of that. There there is. Conclusive evidence of
1: that. Well, associated with. Associated with. Okay. All right. Okay. And an epidemiologist will say that to infer causality, inductive reasoning is very difficult. Mm. And that's part of the problem here is that, like, there are, and you can, by the way, like, I can totally understand this, the criticism of scientists in this area saying, like, why are you so conservative? Like, rather adopt what's almost like a precautionary principle and say, like, let's assume the worst here. Yes, and I'm saying okay, which would be
2: which would be fair, which
1: yeah, and and I understand that, and so we're, again, we'll I'm teeing it up. We'll come to the paper now, and and, the, and the, what I think is the the decision that was made that's caused all the hostilities to exclude a bunch of papers for reasons I believe of what they'll argue is scientific integrity, but you could argue is a little bit naive, right? Because you know what's going to happen with that exclusion. Is Mm. it going to be portrayed as as conspiracy and and cover up? Mm. But the point is, again, is is if you adopt the precautionary principle, what would the sport do? Like what action would be taken against the precautionary principle? I would argue that you're going to say, let's put energies into reducing head impacts. Let's study how they happen. Let's change the laws to try and prevent them. Now, I'm not claiming we've been successful. In fact, I'm quite frustrated at the lack of progress we've made. But we're not, it's not for a lack of trying. Mm. And I'm open to criticism and suggestion about how we can do better at reducing the number and the intensity of those head impacts in the sport. We'll talk about how they happen and some of the challenges in a moment. But, but the precautionary principle says, act to prevent them. There's no downside to preventing head impacts in any no. form of life, right? No one would argue, let them go. It's fine. Yeah. And, and that's certainly not what we're saying. And I don't think it's what any of those sports are saying. Mm. But there's a shadow of these lawsuits. There are yep. people who are trying to push a confession essentially to establish liability. They themselves, by the way, are significantly conflicted by financial gain as a consequence of this. Both yeah. sides are, but you
2: won't see that reported. No. <laughs> and, I would uh, suggest that that was probably the main driver in the end. Well, I think Behind so. a lot of this. I think it so. It wasn't just the human collateral.
1: And, you know, like, and, and so it gets ugly, right, when we walked... <sighs> we had a coffee break at the meeting and then we walk into the the hall now for paper nine you know this is the, everyone's like excited because they want to see what these experts are going to say and i'd heard rumblings about what they were going to do and i was like oh no this is, this is going to be this could be fiery and there's a group that stands outside the door holding these posters Do you remember those <laughs> remember those old posters that were like trying to des- design to encourage smoking they were like pro-smoking posters of like yes. a, a sort of cartoon-drawn Andy Warhol-looking nurse mm. smoking cigarette trying to look cool or a cowboy, a camel man type thing. Mm. So they'd mocked up these posters and they were standing at the door holding these things up saying, smoking doesn't cause cancer, no cause and effect shown and that sort of thing. Or, sm- or head impacts don't cause CTE. The implication being that sport was acting in the same way as tobacco to try and cover up and deny the link, you know. And then they were filming people's reactions as we walked into the into the venue because they knew that it was offensive. Because most of the people in that room have got no conflict; they they're just genuinely interested in the welfare of athletes who play these sports, and they want to yeah. learn. Yeah. But they were filming these, and so it's actually quite it's actually quite offensive to do that in a scientific forum. Yeah. And the guy was looked at, and, and one of the guys saw a facial expression of someone walking in, and says, "I'm just having a bit of fun." Mm-hmm. So mate, this is not funny. This is not, and this is not the way you open dialogue with the sports that you're allegedly trying. If your interest is genuinely, legitimately the welfare of players, this is not how you go about changing yeah, it, that makes sense. by accusing people. Like, again, and maybe, fine, I can, I can be implicated as part of the tobacco side of the argument, but there's a lot of people who are not. They're well-intentioned, well-meaning scientists who are sticking to their training, mm. being told that they're acting like tobacco.
2: And then you want to have dialogue with them? Come on. It's not the way to do it. So, I mean, it sounds like that debate about causality was is is, is a, was obviously a central theme, but there yeah. was obviously more to it than that. Because, as a as a media person, I'm looking at some of the practical stuff that comes out of conferences like that, or is it all just theoretical? No, I mean,
1: like a lot of it's practical. That's not though, because like again, mm. when you're gridlocked academically between these two terms associated with and caused by. <laughs> and you can see like, there's a scientific argument maybe in favor of making that distinction, but there's also a commercial interest and a liability legal one. It's it's, quite complicated, right? For sure. Um, It's very hard to then move practically Mm. other than Mm. to say you must, irrespective of whether you believe in cause or association or not even, do you believe that we can justify head impacts in sport? Yes or no? Nobody. Nobody should be saying, yes, we're okay with them. So every sport should be saying, right. are we doing what we can within reason to reduce head impacts in the sport? That's the practical outcome, which then takes us back to paper one, prevention. <laughs> How do we
2: prevent concussion and head impacts in sport? I mean, there is another factor. I mean, I'm just throwing it out there, but if, if you consider, and there has been some criticism as in the past, once you try and control sports like rugby and NFL too much, potentially you are taking away from... The essence of the game mm, exactly. and you know i can't imagine american football without the big hits because that's part of the game in, in, in rugby, and rugby and rugby is the same exactly. in, enforcing your physical dominance is part of the game exactly. suddenly you change that by changing the laws yeah. you change the essence of the game so there's more to it than just legal the collateral that damage that might be caused as a result of that there's also from a viewer's perspective the game could change because of this, and they reject that, and not just the viewers. the players reject that. the yes. coaches reject it yes. the people the currently involved.
1: involved the people who who these folk believe they're representing mm. are rejecting their efforts to do it because they 're doing it in a way that they 're saying actually this is too much mm. a you 're fear mongering, yes, because every single and this is a, this is now another thing like. If this is going in circles, I apologize. But someone stood up at the conference in the Q&As, and a former American football player called Jared Odrick, who's doing a documentary on this. And he, his angle is to expose the other side as unethical, fear and so forth, which is the side you won't read about in the media. Right. And I hope his documentary comes out, because it'll be interesting to see that perspective. But he basically said, him and his colleagues who played 10, 15, 20 years ago, they're constantly reading about how they're all going to die. Yes. Horrible, suffering deaths. Mm. And no one knows what the true size of that risk is. No. Are they five times more likely to die, or for base risk of one in a thousand, or are they 50 times or a base risk of one in a thousand, or is the base risk one in a hundred? Because that's important information. Mm. And when, when people are not judicious and careful mm. with the way they go about this, they create unnecessary
2: fear. There's mm. this many, and I, I hadn't realized this until he spoke at this conference. Yeah. And, there's, also and another, there's another aspect to that as well. If Mr. and Mrs. Smith has got little Johnny going to school and they hear about all this stuff, the, the last thing they want to encourage is their son to participate in a sport that could potentially right. harm him. So it might influence the growth of the sport. Despite the fact, and this is true of the football
1: study that Willie Stewart did in Scotland and the rugby study, the fact is back that all all mortality mortalities lower Mm. In rugby players, they're less likely to have cardiovascular disease, so there are benefits. Plus, there are benefits that non-rugby people don't always understand. Mm. The rugby community is tight, and part of the thing that binds them is the physical nature of the game. Right? Yeah. They actually want the physical contact. It's the it's thing different. that it's the thing that I believe. Having now been in it for seven eight years, and I wasn't a rugby player, but like it's a, it's a close knit community because mm. you are in this physical battle, you know. Mm. And so there are benefits, physical and emotional and spiritual, to some people, for even, sure. and that's not always acknowledged. But mm. I guess there's
2: the, a brotherhood, yeah,
1: yeah, uh, and a sisterhood for the you know yeah. now, which is also growing. Women's World Cup final at the weekend, sure. yeah. but the, I guess the the point I was trying to make is that you know now they've got these brain health clinics for retired players many unions have set these up world rugby is in the process of setting it up as well something where a retired player at the age of 45 can go online do sort of some risk factor screening based on their prognosis they can get put in touch with a specialist they can talk through some of those issues etc i was i spent a week after the amsterdam event with a few um, rugby players coaches in england and they were telling their accounts that they've done this process and a lot of them were very fearful that they were developing CTE and early onset dementia. But they've now, thanks to this, they've been diagnosed, one of them has ADHD. He's now been treated. He suddenly has improved. Everything's better again. You know, so there's a, so there's a danger, not necessarily of concept, because for me and for World Rugby, the concept about association between head impact and these neurodegenerative diseases, and CTE is established and agreed. But there's a danger in scale because no one knows the true effect size of that risk. Nobody knows who is at risk. To me, I'd rather spend energies trying to answer that. Like, why some players and not others? Yeah. That seems important. What are the confounding factors? And a paper by Anne McKee's group, and I want to read this because um, I think it's important, acknowledges that there are confounders. Right at the end of the paper, it says here... Um, lifestyle factors such as alcohol substance abuse performance enhancing drugs and obesity might also influence susceptibility or disease progression but have not yet been tested empirically now so even they acknowledge that these are confounders we could potentially make inroads by understanding those a bit better as well it's not to say that head impacts don't contribute the lancet is one of the world's leading medical journals and they they published their position statements on neurodegenerative disease and they list 12 factors that are known to cause head injuries uh, to cause uh, dementia Mm. head injuries is one of them but so are these things so is early early depression um Mm. so it seems to me that there are levers that we could access in the early years post-retirement to try and help people reduce this risk but until that's known you can't quantify that because mm. it, it makes just speaking of risk for a moment. If something has a base risk of one in a thousand, and you double that risk, it's two in a thousand, mm-hmm. which means nine hundred ninety eight people still won't get it. No. Most people would take that risk, but if the base risk is three hundred in a thousand, thirty mm-hmm. percent, and you double it, now it's six hundred in a thousand, mm. which means. No one would take that risk. Yeah, for sure. So understanding and quantifying this is is actually quite important because mm. it it um it calibrates your response. And so part of the challenge I think for all the collision sports is is understanding like how strongly to go with this message. And I and I heard a couple of people stood up and challenged the 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 CTE cause people on the fact that they they're overplaying it and terrifying people potentially unnecessarily mm. but no one knows that because the study doesn't exist to confirm yeah. it yeah. so very complicated
2: yeah i mean is the solution i mean it's always interesting because we have had discussions in previous podcasts about scientific um, communities that get together using the same evidence coming up with different conclusions mm. is there a this particular the, the particular group here is there a, a plan going forward for them to say right we're going to try and come up with empirical proof one way or the other, in terms of causality, or is the method the same that you're discussing? Rather prevent, with the eye on we don't really know. And prevention is better than potential cure. Mm. Or let's try and prove that link, or not. I mean, clearly both have to happen. But but for me, the is it possible um, to prove causality? That's what I'm asking. Not yeah.
1: in a not in a randomised control trial. Now, that's obviously the gold standard of research. Just take mm. ten thousand people, split them into. 5,000 yes. to then get exposed to head and I mean, you're not going to do that, yeah. but gotta, you could... Then you're going to get all the brains
2: post and all that sort of thing.
1: Exactly. <laughs> it's, it's a big No job. one's doing that study. It'll yeah. take 30 years. It's too slow, mm. and no one's going to give you any ethical permission for that anyway. Mm. But again, from a paper that was written by Anne McKee, who's the leader on the CTE space, she writes, Large-scale, longitudinal... This was in 2017. Large-scale, longitudinal prospective studies are critically needed to address these public concerns, and close the existing gaps in the basic and clinical science related to the natural history, evaluation and management, and long-term effects of repeated head injury exposure. Now, that's, that is, that's one of the things that is agreed. Mm. Now, the, where it's not agreed is what you do with this now. Mm. And this was 2017. Recently, a paper came out by the same group of authors using something called the Bradford Hill Criteria to establish causality. Mm. And so they're arguing that there is a cause... And the CTE, and this is what the NIH group recently acknowledged as well, is that CTE is partly caused by repeated head injuries. Yeah. So that's the position now of that The NIH particular group being group. the National
2: Institutes of Health in America.
1: Yeah, and they've got a subgroup that deals with mm. neurodegenerative diseases. Yeah. And so that debate will continue, and they mm. must, it should. Because mm. I think everyone would want, like, okay, people arguing in good faith, mm. would want to quantify exactly what that causative mm. Risk is how large is the base? What's the increase mm. in risk? Like, like has been done for neurocognitive decline, uh, dementia, and so mm. on in those studies I've mentioned on mm. this podcast. So mm. that absolutely must happen. But in parallel with that, sports can't say we're, we're going to wait for yeah, it to be shown we're wait half a century. Yeah, exactly, <laughs> or never at all, right? <laughs> yes. And and you can just keep kicking the can down the road, which is the accusation now being made against this group because mm. they haven't they haven't made that commitment the same way the NIH has. So sport can't wait. It has to look at understanding what is the risk of head injuries and head impacts in the sport, not just injury. It's not just a concussion. It might be the five impacts that didn't cause concussion mm. but are still accumulative. They, they call it mm. sub-concussive or non-concussive mm. blows, right? Clearly, this makes, mm. may matter as well. We don't know how many it takes. Mm-hmm. There's a th- there are theories, but as yet unconfirmed. They have to understand why they happen. What are the circumstances that are most Mm. likely to cause these? Mm. And then what are you going to do to reduce that risk? And then once you've identified the case of a concussion, how do you manage that player? How do you diagnose them? How do you manage their return to play? How do you look after them in a way that's best for their long-term health? So all those things matter. And those elements did come out of this conference. So, for instance, on return to play, since 2016, there have been a number of quite good studies that have looked at how quickly you return to some activity after concussion is very important for your eventual full recovery. Mm. The longer you delay activity, the worse it is for you. It used to be, in Cirque du Soleil, they have a lot of concussions as well, as you can imagine. It used to be that a concussed circus performer used to be locked in a dark room for a few days till they felt better. Mm. The research shows that that's actually very bad. What you want is to get that person active as early as possible. So that's a practical outcome from right. this meeting. Okay.
2: That's interesting because it's slightly counterintuitive, though, isn't it?
1: Yeah, but what you want is obviously think you'd you wanna... want
2: to risk them more.
1: Yeah, exactly, but it's a question of calibrating that response, or like right. getting your titration right. Is you want some activity, mm. but how much? Like this. What's the benefit of the activity then? What does that research suggest? Uh, again, I'm not a pathologist or mm. a neurologist, so I'm not sure, but mm. I there are two elements the one is a direct physical effect on the brain you know the the inflammatory processes that are kicked off in the brain as a consequence of head injury concussion Mm. those may be directly improved by exercise increased Mm. oxygenation and blood flow and so forth it's like it's like with an injury like you don't immobilize your leg for three weeks you you try and move it up to the point of pain not Mm. beyond right and it's the same thing with concussion okay there is also quite good evidence that if you force a young athlete or a professional athlete in fact anyone who loves the sport if you force them away from the sport for too long then their psychological and emotional health deteriorates Mm. and that compromises recovery Mm. so especially in kids uh if you keep them off school away from their friends and away from the sport that they love to play, they do worse because Mm. they're actually denied their own enjoyment. So there's two elements to the reason you want to do it.
2: Yeah, yeah. okay. So he talks a little bit about the practical side of it. You mentioned one of the ideas around the practical side of it. Let's take rugby. World rugby is obviously your focus. Mm. Taking world rugby as an example, when you go to a conference like this, what do you go away with and what do you then take back to world rugby in terms of how you implement some of the research and some of the findings of this conference. Yeah, good question. So we have a, there's a small group of the sports
1: that meet the day before or after these conferences. We have done in the last few years. They are NFL, AFL, NRL, which is rugby league. Uh, football is now there. Lacrosse was there. Uh, who am I missing? Uh, NHL, I think I said, and International Hockey Federation. Mm-hmm. And then you get people who are working in the same roles as I am, you know, scientists, the chief medical officers, and they share their ideas. And, like, we get a lot of value there. You know, the NFL is doing some really cool stuff. Mm. Like, they've used, (laughs) they have, like, literally eight-digit budgets, dollar, like, as in tens of millions of dollars to study concussion and head injury. And they've got this biomechanics group that's doing these unbelievable things. Mm. And we look at that and we say, you know what, actually, these blokes are showing that if you get rid of helmet-to-helmet collisions, concussion rates go down. If you can identify the plays or the or the particular scenarios in which concussions are more con- common and reduce those, concussion rates go down. We say, okay, we're, in, we're emboldened by that because that's the same thing we're trying to do.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: It's more difficult in rugby than in American football because, you know, American football is so discreet. There's a kickoff. Mm-hmm. Then there's play one. Then there's play two. In rugby, it flows. and mm-hmm. It's a little bit more difficult to yeah. do. But we, we see the... <laughs> We see the success they've had, we understand, okay, they're showing that this type of tackle is the most dangerous. We say, okay, what's the parallel to that in rugby? Should we be looking at that? So that's quite useful information. Mm-hmm. On the diagnosis side, similar similar things. Um, on the mental health side of play, the AFL and the NRL are doing really good stuff that we've taken a lot from now in the last month and said, actually, we need to start implementing some of this for ourselves. So those are quite practical. Mm-hmm. And there's a lot going on there. Yeah. Um, because that that was the one part of your question. What was the, the other bit? Well,
2: in other words, what has rugby done yeah. uh, around this issue? Because we know that you've been involved in some of the decision-making around the rules mm. that have looked so, to reduce the, the, the risk. Yeah, so where rugby, where rugby has what's actually like a position one would rather
1: not have is that we've got the largest database of concussion diagnoses in any sport mm. because the game is global. You know, NFL have... 16 matches a weekend. Okay. 15 excluding buyers sometimes, right? We have 40 matches a weekend mm. and it's played over the entire year because it's Southern and Northern Hemisphere. They've got it for five, six months of the year. So, mm. Mm. so unfortunately we've actually got a large database of head injuries and assessments and diagnoses and so forth. So I, I would say it's safe to say that of all the sports, we have the best understanding inside of how concussion presents mm-hmm how it happens, and then how it then is diagnosed and managed. So this database is enormous compared to anything they've got. So that's where we have done a lot,
2: I think, more than any other sports, and they, they borrow from what we've done. Practically, how do, you, how do you do that? In other words, if somebody gets concussed in a game, is there a protocol that a doctor on the side of the field then says, right, we have to fill in this form, answer these questions, that gets sent back to World Rugby, yeah. you then accumulate that knowledge? is Exactly there a like
1: that. So in 2011, mm-hmm. there was nothing right and, and that's how that's how recent it is like 11 years ago there was no formal system it was like if you see a guy looks concussed pull him off mm. No, shouldn't surprise anyone although it does because mm. some people still don't understand human nature is that if you don't introduce some kind of formal process most of them go unrecognized or hidden right mm. so in 2011 they introduced like a pitch side concussion assessment which was a short screen lasted five minutes there was major resistance to that because People thought that players would game that to get rests and breaks and so on. But it was linked to substitution. So Mm. if you you got a a head knock and someone saw that, they could say, actually, let's get Mike off the field, Mm. do the screen with him, and put someone on in his place. If Mike looks okay as a result of the screen, he goes back on. If he doesn't, he stays off and this guy stays on as a substitute. The premise was two things. Number one is get the guy off because it's easy to keep him off. And to get him off in the first place. Mm. So get him off for a test. And the second one was give the doctor time and space. Because otherwise, and this was the case, on average the doctor's got one minute and four seconds from the moment he crosses that white line till he's got to get back off the field. Mm. How do you how mm. do you hope to make a yeah. reliable medical decision in a screaming stadium? Player wants to keep going. Mm-hmm. And you're saying, mm, actually no, no, not happening. Yeah. So Get the guy off and do a screen. And that, that eventually H I A, isn't it? Yeah. Which we've actually done ourselves. Yeah, you you were the you were the player. You've and I played. failed
2: without any concussion issues.
1: <laughs> Your baseline performances, anyways. And uh, so that's a that's now a ten minute screen, which is not perfect by any means. Mm-hmm. Like when you know it's got a sensitivity of about eighty percent. So it catches four out of five concussions. And a specificity of about ninety, so it falsely picks up one in ten players who's not concussed. Mm-hmm. So it's not not bad, but it still needs to be improved. So mm-hmm. we're doing we're doing a lot of research on adding different tools like eye tracking, cognitive function, balance tests that might be used in that ten minute assessment. And that's an, that's a return to play protocol. So mm-hmm. you either go back on the field or you stay off. Then two hours after the game, you repeat a more comprehensive assessment, which is called the SCAT-5. It will now be replaced by the next version of it as a consequence of this meeting. So that's a tool that comes out of this meeting that was held in Amsterdam. Mm-hmm. And then 48 hours later, you do it again. because What is a SCAT-5 then? So it's a comprehensive version of the same thing that's done on the side of the field. Okay. So it has a symptom assessment. It has more challenging balance assessments, cognitive function, memory, okay. digits backwards, that sort kind of stuff, and then clinical signs. There's a neck test and there's a neurocognitive screen. it's done like a computerized screen that's recommended to be done (laughs) and it's based on those tests that a concussion is diagnosed and then the player is either concussed or not and if they're concussed then they've got to go through the return to play protocol and we're trying to do a lot of work on that thing i mean it's a it's an enormous database for instance and and there's so many interesting questions like if you if you come off after a head knock and you've got a cognitive abnormality Mm. and we're going to test you for the next few days is that Gonna stay a cognitive, or does a cognitive evolve into balance, or does a cognitive become a symptom? If it's symptoms at the start, how likely is it to be symptoms at the end? Because if you can understand that, Mm -hmm. then you might be able to target rehab, because there's there's exercises you can do for balance, vestibular um, rehabilitation that might accelerate how quickly you recover and can can get back to sport safely. That that
2: was my question. I mean, and do do we know? What the recovery rate of a concussion is, because well, I guess it's it's impossible because concussions are varied in in severity, aren't they? Yeah, exactly, you
1: know? and that's why that's why the sport has been reluctant to treat them as a monolith. You know, yeah. there is pressure. There are people who say that every concussion should have a mandatory 21 or 28 day stand down. Now it's from the moment of concussion you should have at least four weeks out. Mm. We and most sports have said no to that because we're concerned that if you do that as opposed to saying you're going to individualize the the care of the player as they return, you'll drive the diagnosis down. Because at the moment, the best tool to diagnose a concussion is the symptoms. And to get the symptoms, you're relying on the player to be honest with you. Mm. So what do you think would happen, understanding human nature, if you say to a player, I want you to tell me if you have a headache or nausea or dizziness or if you feel funny, like sleepiness, light sensitivity mm. and if you do you miss four weeks the players gonna say I'm yeah, good yeah, I'm fine yeah, I'm yeah. fine <laughs> so you need you need to maintain that degree of trust now you can and again the 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 people in this debate will come at me now and they say oh, you should educate the players about the dangers yes but humans are notoriously rubbish mm. at looking after their future mm. behaviour based on their present decisions you know especially what I mean especially professional players exactly because yeah. they've got such strong incentives yeah for sure so so these these people say two things. They say, if you suspect a concussion, pull him off mm. and give him 28 days off. Well, wow. guarantee you what's going to happen is that you're going to miss concussions. So now the bloke's going to stay on the field, going to play through the concussion, mm. and he's not going to tell you afterwards because he knows he's going to be, quote unquote, and I know this is the wrong word, but bear with me, he's going to be punished. For disclosing that he had the symptoms, that's right? Yeah, and yeah. so you see, there's always—and this is the most fascinating and frustrating thing about this work for me—is that there's always a trade-off. Mm. You can do something that's theoretically right, like 28 days, because there are studies, by the way, looking at brain scans and so on, that show that there are still disruptions at up to 21 or 28 days later. So you could argue that that player needs to miss that. Fine. Mm but you you do that you're going to be trading off mm. not picking them up in the first place so which do you want mm. which risk is worse would you rather not diagnose a concussed player or would you rather run the risk of returning some concussed players a little bit earlier mm. And that's the decision that rugby actually has to make. and It's, al- all sports it's almost do. an impossible... It's, it's, it's,
2: um, yeah, yeah I mean, It's exactly. I can't practically see how you can ever solve that. No, exactly. Mm. because if you, force- you have a machine that just kind of buzzes your forehead and it says, right, he's concussed. Right. Wasn't. And
1: yeah. the search is on, right? So like there are, there are biomarkers. <laughs> like you can do these um, saliva samples and mm. you can look for messenger RNAs. And mm. there is work that's being done, I think, out of Birmingham. We're funding a big study now in English in the women and the men's professional competition where every concussed player is getting a saliva swab taken and a controlled person from every match. And we're going to try and compare those to see whether we can identify. This, some of this work's already been done, but mm. we need to make it more refined. Can we identify one or two biomarkers that gives us an objective mm. standard? Because then you don't have to trust the player anymore. I mean, it's concerning, yeah. right? Like rugby league, there's a paper that's been published in rugby league where they've asked the players, have you ever withheld your symptoms? Have you ever not told the doctor about something that could be concussion? And like the numbers uh, are incredibly 100% high.
2: 100% are going to say that.
1: Yeah. And, and then you say, why? Well, because I didn't want to be dropped. I yeah, didn't want to yeah. lose my place in the team. Yeah. There was a big game coming up. Yeah. And like there's a doctor on Twitter that often like climbs in about this stuff. And he says, hey, that would be a failure on the part of world rugby. Mm. Well, mate, have you ever had a patient smoke? Yeah. Have you ever had someone overconsume alcohol yeah. and eat bad foods for them? People people do mm. this. Yeah, for sure. Because they they got other incentives, and it's mm. it's to me so naive and oversimplified to say just educate them and they'll tell you they they won't. And then mm. you're gonna miss mm. concussions. Mm. And I'd rather I'd rather not do that than have players maybe returning a little bit early, provided they're in a well managed. Professional medical care mm-hmm. system in a professional team. Yeah, so yeah, 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 it's it's a hell of a complex thing, you know. Absolutely. And I mean, we, we've we've thrown a lot at trying to prevent
2: them. And again, I'm more than happy to take on the chin. Well, when you say prevent, I mean, just give us a practical example of what rugby has done. Well, because you've talked a little bit about um, the fact that you've changed the tackle law in yeah. rugby. To prevent and, this head-on-head contact. yes, and that's been so
1: frustrating. Like, and I don't, you know, sitting here now, like, honestly, I don't know that it's worked because I don't think the message has landed. Like, so the, the concept is good. You know, they say it's 10% strategy, 90% implementation. And I'm not, I'm not convinced that we've gotten the implementation exactly right. So what happened there was very first big project I did for World Rugby was to do a study on 611 head injuries. And we said, well, okay. We know these were head injuries because we've got access to that database. You know, I told you earlier, every time a guy comes off mm-hmm. for an assessment or an immediate removal, criteria one, we have a record of that. So we say, okay, we're going to look at the video now. And so let's ask what the circumstances were. Was it What type of tackle was it? Was it high speed or low speed? What was the direction of the player? What was the nature of the head contact? What was the height of the tackle? So we do this study and we discover that high head contacts, you know, like – i'm tackling you my head near your head your shoulders is much more dangerous than torso and even below the waist yes okay so we sit with coaches eddie jones paul o'connell good coaches we say well what do we do and they say well you've got to get the height down how Mm -hmm. punish high tackles more harshly because then you're sending a message that there's risk here if you go too high Mm -hmm. and therefore we want you to target lower change your technique change your behavior and that way you'll drive players away from high risk towards a lower risk. Not zero, but lower risk. So we come up we come up with the high tackle directives and and I mean we it's a zero tolerance directive. We say we're gonna have a clamp down on high tackles. And in one in one competition in the six months after the directive, there's a fewer yellow and red cards for high tackles. Exactly the opposite of what was intended. They give they give ninety percent more penalties, but less Mm. often will you see a yellow and a red car and you say well geez that didn't work why, what did why, why didn't that work because no. it's because, you know that broken telephone game where you line people up and you send a message from one person to the right. next to the next to the next and by the time it reaches the last black, someone's ordering eggs instead of like a computer yeah. <laughs> like
2: <laughs> yes like that's what's happening I think is, it, is that is that referees are not interpreting the guidelines properly? Yeah, and 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 they're human, and there's so much certainly pressure. from my view of watching rugby, they have been more. Yeah, so <laughs> they have been a bit more tough yeah. on high tackles than ever before. I mean, now
1: remember, now we're five years on, right? This is right. 2017, yeah. and what's happening is I think the refs are human, mm. and there's so much noise. So you say, okay, this is this is the plan. We've identified a risk from higher contact tackles. Mm. We're going to try and drive the behavior through sanction as a mm. message. Mm. This is what's... The media... I remember that first week after we published this thing, the media was all over it saying it was going to kill rugby. Yep. Referees were going to ruin the spectacle, blah, blah, blah. Well, that happened in the place that it didn't work. Mm. <laughs>
3: mm.
1: In, in, in France, no worries. The penalties went up. The red cards went up. You know, like back then, you had a red card every 60-second match. Like literally, you'd watch five... Well, you'd watch a whole season of rugby and see two of them mm. like and within weeks of implementing that it was every 20th match So, okay mm. it it changed the referee's behavior mm. Mm. in other countries as i say like you've got more penalties but less often were they going to be red carded and mm. yellow carded you're like oh gosh and then we said okay now we've got a consistency problem here because the refs under pressure the media's saying something the coaches are saying something the players are saying something we're trying to say something I and mean, it's very difficult yeah it's hell of a difficult and that's why like the the criticism is sometimes like yeah it's easy to fling pebbles from where you are but like try and actually change behavior of like 50 people at the same time it's but did, it's hell of did a the difficult. law actually change in other words
2: once you no, consider those then, guidelines it was more guideline than a law it was a directive words, to implement current law more strictly for instance if you said if you tackle above the waist you're going to get a red card that yeah. that's that's quite an and, absolute thing yeah. so that would that would Cool, that would force rugby players right. to potentially be much more vigilant than we prefer if he
1: didn't do it. Right, and you remember earlier <laughs> on you made the point about like you want to change it but not change it so much that the essence is lost. Yes, that's the dilemma you're dealing with there. Again, it's the same. Concept, I would argue tra- that this tra- would, would be more,
2: cu- would, be more would, be, would be more would um, be more entertaining
1: and, to watch. And in fact, it is, and we got data on this now because the French did it. So, so you don't but, have but, as many successful tackles. Yeah, but because what happened in France in twenty. 20- 18, I think it was mm. 18 or 9. I think 18 is they had three or four deaths in a short period of time, and those deaths were all caused by high tackles, right? Guys that were being hit directly to the head. And We flew over to France and we met the sports minister of France. I mean, it was a big we in this hotel near the opera house and, oh, oui. in the Gagne. And, and like it was the president of French rugby, the sports minister, the high performance, it was a big deal. I mean, mm. they were they were. There were, there were vibes of like saying, if you don't act here, you're going to ban the sport. We will not have teenagers being killed by the sport. Mm-hmm. And their, their solution was sure. to lower the height of the tackle to the waist in all rugby except professional. So in every level of rugby below their top two or three tiers, they made it waist-high tackle. And we got the data from them in, in Amsterdam. And they reckon, based on what they've got, they've got this blue card system where if the referee suspects a concussion, he can send the player off for for good, but it's a blue card, you know, it's no fault of yours, but you're off, mate. You got a concussion. No, it's like that been And that's down that's down by about twenty five percent as a consequence of this. And they're reporting that the game is much more open. There are many more o- offloads, there's many more phases, there's fewer rucks because they're more passing. So like there's a lot to be said for that. And then when we went to Amsterdam, so why not
2: phase that into the game well, in its entirety?
1: Well, each union's <laughs> got to do. Then World Rugby is recommending now that at the community level, the legal height of the tackle be lowered. What, where there's some dispute still, is where you lower it to. Do you lower it to the sternum, from the current line of the shoulders, uh-huh. which is a fifteen centimeter drop, or do you lower it to the waist? And there are people who are arguing that going to the waist is too much. Yeah. I'm, personally, I would like to see more of that. New Zealand Rugby announced while we were in Amsterdam that they were going to implement a sternum-high height tackle in all community rugby. So as of next year, they're going to be there. Now we're trying to put pressure on all the unions saying, like, guys, this is where we got to go. The community game needs to lead on safety for its players and let let the professional game do slightly different things. That's fine. But in the community game, we want the height to be low. And I hope, I hope that like SA Rugby, if anyone's listening to this, be brave and go waste. Seriously, yeah. let's it's do, not, it's let's not do to, waste.
2: It's not going to be to the detriment of the entertainment level. No, the, the, only, argument the, make, the only argument I suppose you could
1: make. The only I suppose you can make is that schoolboys are going to one day be your pros, and if they've mm. only ever tackled at the waist, and then suddenly they can now tackle all the way to the shoulder, that's too big an adjustment at that late stage. Right. Same argument, incidentally, for why banning the tackle in kids up to the age of sixteen is, I think, a bad idea because. Mm. If you don't learn the competencies when you're smaller and you only introduce full tackling when you're 16, now everyone's bigger, faster, stronger, more powerful. Now you're going to face the risk for the first time. That's why, incidentally, I think women are probably more at risk Mm. than men because so many women don't play as young kids and they Mm. only take the sport up later and they haven't developed tackle Mm. technique and competency in contact. So, Mm. again, trade-offs, right? You could could ban it and make it lower, Mm. but then maybe you just kick it down the line and it becomes higher later on so that's yeah so we we introduced that that high tackle thing to try and get the height lower without making the height lower you know because we wanted to nudge it down i don't think that it's worked sadly um
2: and you think it's because the penalty is not harsh enough
1: yeah and it hasn't been applied consistently enough and often enough which like many listeners will be screaming now saying like there's way too many red cards but there's three tens that tell you the story here right now there are ten high tackles every ten matches, one per match. Every tenth high tackle is red carded. In other words, you will see nine high tackles sure. before you see a red card, and every tenth match has a red card. So, every tenth match. That's is not red a bad.
2: That's not bad stats, though, actually. Exactly. Yeah.
1: Now. But people are going to scream and say, oh, a, you're that's killing acceptable. the game. That's acceptable. Yeah. yeah. The global average in 2022 is every 10th match has a red card, hmm. which means you will, as a team, have one red card per 10-match season. Mm, yeah. If you play 20 matches, you'll see two red cards a season. You can't seriously tell me that that's not worth – that price is not worth paying to try and get the, the risk down. But mm. the problem we've had is that the message – remember, because the sanction, that red card carried a message, tackle lower, change your technique, be safer – I don't think that message has been received yeah and i'll I'll be the first to put my own hand up and say maybe we haven't made it loudly clearly and simply enough i don't know but i don't think that it's i don't think behaviors have changed enough so when when i look at the concussion rates they're slightly down in france and south africa they're not down in new zealand and and england globally and international rugby they're not lower than they were so you could say I guess realistically but I would think a little bit uncharitably <laughs> that it hasn't worked but then I'm looking at the data and I'm saying well in 2016 25% of all tacklers were upright upright tackle is dangerous because now it's head head it's high in 2022 20, it's 29% it's gone up <laughs> so we haven't changed the behavior so we have to think more about like how do we drive that behavior and the other thing incidentally and I mean this is like a proper dive into rugby now is that there are there are faster rucks now than ever before. Mm. Like the average ruck speed is like just over three seconds and seventy to seventy-five percent all rucks are three seconds or less, right? In time. When a ruck is that fast, there's no payoff to a team to go into that ruck. Yeah. So when you watch rugby now, you will see that most teams do not commit players to rucks. Yeah, instead three, yeah. Instead they want to fan out and defend. Mm. And one coach said it to me best, he says, if I can't contest the ruck and put pressure on the opponents there. I'm going to put it on the next phase, which is the pass and the catch. So what's happening is the line speed is going up. Everyone wants to now smash the guy as he's about to catch the ball, hit him behind the advantage line, mm. and then dominate that collision. If you designed a scenario to have injuries, that would be it. Yeah. So the way the game is being played and is evolving is actually creating more risk. Yes. And then here's us <laughs> sitting there saying, "Let's let's tinker here and tinker there and actually like... It's yeah.
2: You only understand necessarily the consequence of a potential guideline once it comes into practice, because I guess it's always difficult to foresee what the eventual outcome will be yeah. in that situation. And, it, and it's hidden yeah. by so many other different things, you know. Like there's 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 five or
1: six things happening to change and, and moderate that injury mm. risk, mm. and we're we're playing with one or two levers, but we can't control the other three. Yeah. So you say, let's change the law to try and make the rack safer. Yeah makes sense logical but then by making it safer you make it less contestable which means players don't go there they go to the tackle mm. and actually you end up achieving the opposite which yes. is more injuries in the tackle than in the in the rucks so, like and that's why yeah. it's it's such a fascinating sport because there's always for every action there are two or three potential unintended consequences yeah and and it it's proven so difficult to get a handle on what those are mm. but i mean i got some data now i shared it on twitter yesterday since we changed the, the high tackle law and the interpretation, and now we've got these frameworks to try and guide the decision process. Like, was there head contact? Yes. Was it high in danger? Yes. Was there mitigation? No. Right, red card. Mm-hmm. Was there mitigation? Yes. Yellow card. You know, to try and, to try and create some sort of consistency yeah, and yeah. understanding. So in 2022, we've analyzed 157 head injuries in tackles. And it is astonishing when there is a tackle that is red carded, the risk of a head injury is 232 times higher than if there's a legal tackle. So what we're saying there is that, and we know what a red card is, it's defined as a head contact tackle that is high in danger because the speed, the recklessness, the upright body position with no mitigation. That scenario is 230 times more likely Mm. to cause a head injury than a legal one. So, okay, that's an observation. Now you gotta say to the coaches, what are you gonna do about
2: that? Mm. It's well, the sanction should be enough if you can get red carded. Yeah, but should be enough for prevention. But yeah. is it?
1: Is it changing the behaviour? See, that's the yeah, missing. Yeah. That's
2: the missing piece.
1: <laughs> I mean, it's unbelievable. The ball carrier, the risk to the ball carrier from a red card tackle, in other words, a high tackle with head contact that is high speed, upright, reckless, and no mitigation, is 780 times higher than yep. the risk to the ball carrier from a legal tackle. It's right. like eye popping numbers. Yeah. Normal in a legal tackle the ball carrier has a risk that's less than one in a thousand tackles. Yeah. You know, the ball carrier gets injured every 1,100 tackle as a legal tackle. When it's an illegal tackle, it's every 500 tackle. tackle. Yeah. I mean, it's not every yeah. 500 tackle, every second tackle. Yeah, yeah. It's 500 per thousand. Yeah. I mean, it's just, it's incredible how high the risk is. Mm, mm. So we just have to get the head out of the game. And I just, mm. yeah, I, I don't know how you do that more than we, we're doing now. We, we have to just keep trying.
2: Game bans,
1: yeah, maybe you have got to <laughs> give harsher sanction on the side. But again, there, like <laughs> the, the the players and the coaches, they are arguing that the current sanctions are too too severe. Because at the moment, if you get a red card, like we had at the weekend, South Africa, mm. Fiji, the England player in the women's final, they come in at six weeks. Yeah. That's the mandatory start point, and then it can be cut into th- down to three weeks. So they're saying six weeks is too much for this. They're saying, well. Yeah, I understand that it's not intentional. You're not doing this on purpose. It's not an act of
2: violence, but it's it's causing head injuries at such a high rate. That but you're trying to change behavior. Yeah, exactly. I would argue that the yellow card is probably more effective in doing this. So if you doubled the time for the yellow card from 10 to 20 minutes. Yeah, that's instance, an interesting one. might be better than giving somebody a game sanction because the effects of you are yeah. weakening your team on the park
1: yeah now the, 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 the red card is widely rejected because you're taking i mean the women's final, you know what was it 17 minutes in red card yeah our game against france now the men's game sixth mm. minute was it i think and now you've got 14 on 15 and everyone says that's ruining the spectacle of the game i mean both those games were hell of a good even with the red card that's right. yeah. maybe without the red card they wouldn't have been as, <laughs> as exciting yeah, but yeah, that's not that's an true. argument for the red card of course yeah. but but people reject the red card so they want yeah. the red card to be more lenient and they want the post-match to be more lenient also. Mm, mm. And we're saying, like, this is the thing that's causing the major problem, you know? Mm. Like, what are we going to mm. – Just we can't have both. We can't have more lenient on-field and off-field, mm. knowing what
2: we know about risk. It's like, so mm. what do we do? It's mm. very difficult. Final question from me. You talked briefly about this, and if I remember this correctly, there is some technology in the mouth guards yeah. that is now being used to track. Is that is it tracking or is it an accelerometer in that mouth guard? Because I was going to – my initial thought was could you measure the impact of a continuous impact on a player using a mouth accelerometer for instance
1: yeah you can and that's exactly yeah. the idea now yeah. so we've we've we funded a study in the community game in New Zealand mm. the elite game in Europe the Women's World Cup, mm. every team was offered the mouth guards. Nine took it up. Three said no, which mm. is a shame. Real pity. And then of the nine who took it up, not every player wore it. So for instance, I think South Africa did really well. Like 90% of them wore it. Some of the other teams, it was in the 20, 30% range. So the compliance hasn't been great. But the idea is that players now wear this mouth guard. It's got a, a triaxial accelerometer. So it measures acceleration of the head in three planes. So you can measure you can measure linear and, a, and rotational mm. acceleration. So what we've now started to do is measure head acceleration events. And so, for example, in the Women's World Cup, 3% of all tackles involved a head acceleration exceeding 35 Gs. Mm. Okay. Now, what does that mean? We don't know because <laughs> mm. it's so early on. We're not sure. Over time, we'll get injuries. We'll start saying, okay, 90% of concussions happen above a certain linear mm. acceleration, rotational acceleration. So we'll have a little bit more information about what causes the, the injury based on the acceleration of the head. Mm. Once we know that, we can start to do rapid fire interventions like the question of what height of tackle is the least likely to cause a high head acceleration. We could answer that in one day.
3: Mm. We
1: could go down to a professional or a local club and we could give them all mouth cards, and we could make them tackle one another for 30 minutes and then measure with video what head accelerations caused, you know? So and we can change laws, and we can see how that affects it. So, the because you know the problem at the moment is is as I say, every every three hundred odd tackle causes a head injury,
3: mm.
1: but that means you're missing two hundred ninety nine of them. You have no information about two hundred ninety nine of them. You only know one. Mm. Mouth guards means we can understand three hundred, mm. and so in theory we're mm. we're on the cusp of opening up a whole new understanding Mm. of prevention. And that's you ever make those mouth guards mandatory?
2: Yeah, I think a professional game.
1: I hope I hope so. Yeah. I mean at the moment we've got a big study going on, as I mentioned, in England in the men's and the women's game. We've got similar problems there. The players don't want to wear them. Partly I understand because the accelerometer makes it a bit bigger than normal. So it's a bit thicker. So you can't speak as well and it's a little bit bulkier in the mouth. Logic tells you that in the next 6 to 18 months, those mouthguards will shrink in size and then they'll be the same as the ones the players choose to wear and then there'll be no reasonable re- explanation or excuse not mm-hmm. to wear them. Mm-hmm. And I would love to be in a position one day where every player has to wear an instrumented, technologically advanced yeah. mouthguard and we can then start to do really cool studies on them. You know, like that, that, is the, that is the biggest opportunity to change the understanding mm-hmm. of head impacts and head acceleration is what we call it now, not sure. impacts anymore. Because sometimes they happen without an impact. What, what what we have seen, for instance, in the New Zealand study is that it's confirmed that high tackles are more likely to cause high head accelerations. Tacklers have higher head accelerations than ball carriers, than rucks, unless the ball carrier hits on the head. Then the acceleration is enormous, which is a obvious, and yeah. you didn't need a mouth guard to, yeah. to tell you that. But we can we can add so much with the mouth guard. So that's quite exciting. And hopefully, mean, <laughs> we had a call last night with the New Zealand research group, the biomechanist there, Melanie Bussey, they've done amazing stuff. And that paper will go off in the next couple of weeks, describing how head accelerations happen, where they happen, who they happen to, and how large they are. Then will come five or six other studies the following on after it. And mm. there'll be a lot to talk about in the next while. And, mm. geez, maybe that's the thing that unlocks effective prevention mm. because at the moment we've 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 um we've struggled to effectively prevent them because so many there are so many moving parts yeah know? yeah i mean it's just it's it's amazing mm. fascinating and quite cool but frustrating also like we can change one thing and then two things change in response and they cancel out the
2: thing we changed i think it leads back to what we said right at the start of this <laughs> podcast is that the impact of this discussion is that there are debates and there is technology and there is rules that help us understand and manage this concussion issue. But in the long term, the future of the games that are affected by this are affected by the decisions you guys as scientists are making at conferences like we've discussed and at policy that was that is eventually implemented down the line because yeah. it really is the future of the game if it can't be solved potentially the games that we are watching now may, may not exist in yeah and 20 years time in the way that we recognize them
1: and honestly where we are now relative to 2011 worlds apart mm. where we are now even relative to 2017 worlds apart i know that i've said that it's been frustrating with the law change to reduce the concussion incidents and that is that is the case but we're still looking and in fact. I am of the opinion that if we weren't doing those law things, the concussion incentive would be even higher. Yeah. Because the game is changing in a direction of more risk and we're introducing things to reduce risk. So the fact that it's stable to me is progress, <laughs> which might sound paradoxical, but 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 the, the but the identification and the diagnosis and the management of concussed players I think is improving. Yes, people criticize it. They say that the screen is useless or not fit for purpose. They're telling us that the return to players are too short. I th- I think we're so far, so much better off now than we were in 2011, 2017. And I am I am confident that in like two or three years we'll be better off than we are today. But it's people must just understand that like these things are not simple fixes. Like no. this is not change X, see Y. No. This is change X. The whole alphabet then gets rejiggled. And then you try and figure out if you've changed Y. Is it's not change, easy. Yeah. Yeah. but like the, there's progress being made and like there genuinely are and i'm not talking about world rugby now but i'm talking about the universities down in new zealand england just here in south africa like they're doing such good stuff that like i think people can take heart there's a lot of negativity around this space but i th- i think there's i think there's progress being made it's just waiting for like that inflection to be reached yeah yeah yeah
2: Professor Rostocker, thank you very much for your time. Um, just to let all of you know that obviously as we sit here doing this podcast, we're a couple of days away from the World Cup soccer, and uh, we have, hopefully, we're going to get a couple of very interesting interviews lined up in the next couple of weeks. Um, I will confess, and I'm sure Ross might join me on this, but uh, I am not a massive soccer fan, <laughs> but I am willing to learn. And I think uh, it's I'm quite keen to get behind watching this World Cup soccer. I know, Ross, you're a bit of a soccer fan, but... The science of it interests me, and I think we're looking forward to just seeing some of the games, some of the interest, because it's the one time, even if you're not a soccer fan, that you kind of watch some soccer on television, and you watch Brazil probably most likely, although I believe that Argentina might be the favourites this year. I hope so. That's
1: who who I'll be rooting for. Argentina. Yeah, Yeah. and there's there's a few dud matches early on. I mean, the opening games, Qatar, Ecuador. Oh, sounds thrilling!
3: Different. Like, I suppose
1: for the, <laughs> I suppose for the hosts, maybe they said the same thing when we played Mexico back in 2010 or something. But I mean, that's actually a game of, that was anyway. Um, yeah, there's a few good games in the pool, but like for sure, by the time the quarters and the semis happen, yeah, I'll be watching it. But I must say, like, following the coverage of the the Qatar elements of it, yes, it's tough to throw my weight and my enthusiasm behind a tournament in Qatar, man. I mean, it's it's no crowds. It's absolutely, like. Their, their record and like the number of people died building those stadiums. Mm-hmm. The human oh, it's just actually like unpleasant. Mm-hmm. So, anyways, we'll see what the what the attendances look like in the crowds. That'll be interesting.
2: And I guess to some extent, watching World Cup soccer, and I say this with the naivety of somebody that doesn't follow it, I always feel like when you play, somebody's playing for their country versus playing for their club, that there is an element of the 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 integrity of the sport and the legitimacy and the what's the word? It's a bit like watching. Championship athletics, when you don't have a pace in mm, the front, mm. there's a race. Less of a business. It's less of a business. Yeah, I feel like it's yeah. more authentic as a sport watching World Championship, like a World Cup versus yeah. a, a cup no, game. So. I,
3: am,
1: I am excited for when it gets to yeah. the business end. And, yeah. and we've got a guy lined up um, who has got extensive experience in football and yeah. in other sports. And like yeah. it'll be really interesting to pick his brains about the scientific yeah. – um, philosophies in football compared to those other sports and is it advanced is it not how does yeah. it all
2: work it'll be cool and don't forget those of you that join us on patreon you can ask us questions if you have a soccer question or you have a soccer idea that you'd like us to investigate drop us a line on our patreon um, account you can check us out on patreon.com backslash science of sport podcast and uh, you'll be able to see all the discussions going on that once you become one of our patrons but uh, from us for now it's goodbye <music>
1: Thank you for listening to the Science of Sport podcast. Follow us on Twitter at SportsSciPod.
0: Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. HelloFresh.